Okay, I think we are almost there. Hold on, takes a second. Yep, here we go. Um, okay, hey guys, what's up? My name is Jeanette, also known as Misfit Vegan, and I have a very, very special guest here. He is the author of many, many very important books, including Eat to Live, um, Eat for Life, Super Immunity, Fast Food Genocide. We have Dr. Joel Furman. So please welcome him. And uh, Dr. Furman, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Nice to see thank, you. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. So I love your books and I have a lot of questions. Um, the first topic that I'd love to get your opinion on and uh, pick your brain on is the the laws regarding ingredients. Okay, so there's, I've read, and I want to know um, your thoughts on this. I've read that that companies don't need to put all the ingredients into the foods, and there's some secret hidden ingredients in foods. Um, do you, can you talk about like the laws regarding what's in our food that we're eating, and do they need to tell us exactly what we're eating? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'm the right person to ask that question. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, we know that foods are doused with, you know, 40 chemicals in the food process when the food is farmed, let's say. And those chemicals they use as pesticides and herbicides and fungicides are not put on food labels, but they're in the raw materials that food manufacturers and food, you know, even produce has, has, has chemical residue on it. I mean, obviously, the... The ideal thing is to eat natural foods that don't have labels and to eat organic whenever possible. That's what we're all striving for. And regenerative organic agriculture is the way to protect our earth and protect ourselves simultaneously. So, I mean, but no, I don't, I think that if you're adding an additive to a food in the manufacturing process, you have to put it on the label as far as I know, but I don't know everything about that topic, you know? Yes, I thought so too, but then I read somewhere and that's my first, my first question. Cause I really wanted to ask you because I really respect you and I love all your right. books and everything that you do. So the next question is, um, you know, there's a lot of different ingredients in healthy food that isn't actually healthy. And so from your years and years of experience, can you please share with everyone, um, some of the most unhealthy foods that are touted as healthy because, um, you know, people are confused out there. Um, they don't know exactly like what is healthy and what isn't. So what are some common foods that are supposedly healthy in mainstream society, but actually aren't? Well, the main one is olive oil is oil because oil is very fattening. It's 120 calories. You see, when you get your fat from eating a nut or a seed, your body is absorbing the, the calories at about one or two calories a minute. And with the slow calories coming into the body, the body can preferentially burn it for energy. And also the fibers inhibit the speed, not just the speed of the absorption, but the fibers pull some of those fat calories out into the toilet bowl. So all the calories don't even get absorbed. When you take, you know, walnut oil instead of the walnut or sesame oil instead of the sesame seed or olive oil instead of the olive, then we biologically get all the calories rushing in within three to five minutes. And it's 120 calories a tablespoon. And the caloric rush then revs up fat storage 
and it, it's stored as fat on the body. You don't burn it off for energy. And with the with with 90% of our population being overweight, and I'm saying 90%, even though conventional authorities say 77%, I'm saying that's because they don't consider over people with a BMI of 23 or more to be overweight, and I do. They consider the demarcation line between normal and overweight as being a BMI of 25. And all long-lived societies and all healthy people and all long-lived people have BMIs below 23, not below 25. So what I'm saying is that it's really 90% of the population is overweight, and there's no such thing as a healthy overweight person. Let's push that aside because fat on the body accelerates aging and fat on the body spews out pro-inflammatory compounds and fat on the body accelerates risk of cancer. Therefore, I'm saying that olive oil is a, a food that accelerates a woman's risk of breast cancer. It accelerates the woman's risk of breast cancer because it keeps her overweight. She can't lose weight pouring oil on her food. So even though you asked me the question, we could think of a hundred different foods, but I'm just thinking oil is so, because it's so much people think it's a health food and they're all overweight people pouring fattening oil on their food, you know? Um, but then like, what else? It could be, you know, I guess, um, I guess fish is the next thing. The idea that people are consuming all the seafood, particularly bivalves and shellfish. You know what a bivalve is? It's, it's oysters, clams, scallops, and mussels are called bivalves. And they live on the bottom of the ocean. And with, the, with um, commercial agriculture and runoff of so much nitrogen to the waterways, you have um, more production of algae and more production of cyanobacteria that live on the algae and are, are waterways close to the shorelines and in interior lakes are full of a compound called BMAA, which is a link to Parkinson's disease and dementia and ALS. There's clusters of ALS near lakes where people eat freshwater fish, and there's clusters of ALS near shorelines where people are eating bivalves. But you have like 50 times as much BMAA in bivalves and shellfish as you do in, let's say, ocean food, uh, not a wild ocean fish. And even though an oyster may be rich in omega-3 and it may be rich in zinc and it may be otherwise good for you if you were eating it 40,000 years ago with all the dumping of plastics in the ocean and the dumping of chemicals, we now have some of the most toxic, most dangerous foods on the planet when people are eating small seafood. Even when you were a sardine, we used to think the big fish like um, tuna and shark and barracuda, and those were all full of toxic metals and they're predatory fish. But now the little fish have plastic, microplastic particles impregnated in their gut. And when you eat a little fish, you eat the guts with it. You don't like, you don't strip the muscle off the bone and throw, this, and throw the guts away. You eat the guts on the little fish and you're getting all this plastic in your body. So we're exposing ourselves to microplastic, which is carcinogenic too. So I'm saying the next most dangerous thing is probably seafood over. And so it's that people think of these things as health foods, you know? Absolutely. And um, can we just say for the like free range, organically grown, like fish, like the specialized fish that costs way more money in the, in whole foods and stuff. Is that the same? Is that still like, containing plastic and mercury and all these things? Yes. I mean, it's true that the farm-raised fish may have some more antibiotics and chemicals in them, but the natural organic fishes we're talking about are fish that live in nature. And off the coastal shelves of the United States and of, and of um, Northern Europe, we have so much dumping of waste products that the fish have become contaminated with microplastic particles and the shellfish and the bivalves are so dangerous, they should not be eaten at all. So yes, even the wild fish, even the wild seafood.
I mean, true, if you lived in Polynesia and Tahiti and those areas where there's less dumping and you had a fish, you'd probably, you'd probably be a cleaner fish, but that's not what people are getting. They're not getting, they're getting commercial fish that are wild. It's not wild, wild fish. It's commercial wild fish. And they're, it's still, you know, we shouldn't eat, people should not eat much fish or see it as a health food. Thank you for clarifying, because I know that's the comment somebody's going to write. Well, I don't eat, you know, fat, yeah. you know, fish oh, filet from the meat I eat, You know, and the meat I eat is like is um, they're going to say, oh, I eat, you know, grass fed natural yes. meat as if that's any better. They're just brainwashed by, you know, people selling them and I, a concept that's wrong, because whether you're eating meat that's commercially raised or eating naturally raised or wild raised meat, it still has all those features that rev up the cancer causing hormones and accelerate aging. And it's too much, you know, the, in other words, what I'm saying right now is the high concentration of animal protein revs up growth hormones that makes, you know, us can get excessively sized, but also allows cancer cells to replicate and grow. So it doesn't matter whether the, even the meats are naturally raised, they're still going to increase risk of cancer if used regularly in the diet. Thank you so much. Um, in your book, Fast Food Genocide, um, I remember reading a long time ago about how eating fast food was comparable or even more dangerous than smoking cigarettes. And I used to tell people this, you know, from your book, I would say, you know, e you know, eating this fast food, eating these animal products is really dangerous. It's like, you know, you're like you're smoking cigarettes. You can get cancer from this. And people didn't believe me. And even just yesterday, I, I told somebody this. she didn't believe me that you can get cancer from milk, that milk, you know, um, contributes to cancer cells. Can you please talk a little bit about how eating fast food and animal products cause cancer cells in the body? You know, you know, I guess the underlying theme here is what I'm saying and you're alluding to is that we don't have to get breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer that we have this unique opportunity in human history to live longer without the fear of these diseases. And we've ascertained the causes of heart attacks and strokes and dementia and common cancers. And we can live longer, healthier than ever before without fear. Um, but people don't like the answer. They don't, they'd rather be dead or get cancer. And that's okay. You know, at least we do the best and to give as much information as we can. But what we've been finding from the most, we could say the most dramatic findings in the last decade in the field of human nutrition has to do with our body's ability to regulate the occurrence of cancer. And that is that particular, and heart attacks too, particularly by regulating the consumption of protein in the body. So protein is a major controller. And here's what we found in these studies. And I'm saying these studies and, um, I'm saying that studies done in 2018, 2019, 2020, 21, 22, 23, every year a major study comes out corroborating and documenting the correctness of the earlier studies. These studies all show the same thing. They're not like one study shows something and, one, and another study shows something different. The point is, is that in the past, meat eating in studies didn't show it caused that much cancer because when people ate less meat, they didn't see cancer rates go down. And the reason that happened was because people ate less meat and they ate more chicken. They ate less meat, they ate more, more dairy and eggs. They ate less meat, they ate more junk food. They didn't eat less meat and eat more beans, nuts, and vegetables. They ate more, less meat and more chicken. It didn't change anything. But now these studies have looked at this issue differently. 
It's compared animal protein intake to plant protein intake. And when people reduce animal protein and increase plant protein, that's the major factor that modulates the occurrence of cancer. So it means we can modulate cancer by eating more animal protein and they put it down by eating less and we can modulate um, increase lifespan by eating more plant protein and reduce risk of cancer. Because plant protein means, it doesn't mean you're getting sugar and oil and junk food from plants and white flour pasta. It means you're eating foods that have a lot of protein in them that are plants, which are whole grains, vegetables, beans, and nuts and seeds. Those four foods. Those are the four plant foods that have a good amount of protein. A matter of fact, a nutritarian diet, which is the name of diet I coined to recommend that I recommend the portfolio of foods that I want people to eat that include, you know, greens and beans and onions and mushrooms and berries and seeds and, and nuts, all these foods that has a lot of protein in it, even more than a lot of people eating a standard diet with meat. There's more protein than nutritarian diet because we didn't dilute the protein with so much oil and so much junk food and sugar. So we're getting about, you know, 18 to 19 grams of protein compared to maybe 15 to 16 grams on a more meat-based diet because they're eating so much junk with the meat. Bottom line here is that the animal protein is a different animal than plant proteins because animal protein, because it's so biologically complete, is the body turns very efficiently into growth hormones like insulin-like growth factor one. IGF-1 is a growth hormone and a higher amount of growth hormone in the body of IGF-1 promotes cancer cell replication. And we know that longer lifespan in, and lower rates of cancer are associated with lower levels of IGF-1. And eating plant proteins keep IGF-1 minimally adequate to maintain muscle mass with aging, but not excessively activated to then allow cancer cells to replicate. So it's the combination of a high exposure to phytochemicals with a low exposure to animal protein to keep IGF-1 that enables the body to not get cancer. And so we have this ability to do that. So animal products do not contain phytochemicals. It's colorful plants that contain the phytochemicals and antioxidants that prevents toxins and carcinogens from damaging the DNA. And it's the plant proteins that give us adequate but not excessive high biological protein that's gonna excite cancer replication. The only thing I left out too much is, is sugar and white flour, which is really a drug. It's not really a food because a high glycemic effect of eating sugar and white flour also can promote, you know, heart attack and cancer as well. So back to the, thank you. Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. And thanks for clarifying back to the animal protein. I really want to just put this to rest. Is there any blood type or anyone from any continent that needs to consume animal protein to be healthy and happy and live a long life? Um, like when I say any, oh, I'm sorry. When I say any content, I mean like, you know, me, I'm here in Miami, but my family's from Italy. So like, is it because I'm from Italy and my family ate a lot of cheese that I need to continue eating cheese? Th this is my question. No, there's nothing like that, but there are people with digestive impairments and who are, who as they age with maybe they've eaten a diet so poor their whole life that they're gonna get frail and wasted with aging. And maybe they need a little extra animal protein to keep their protein levels high enough. So there, there is an occasional person 
who might benefit from a little bit of either concentrated protein in the form of hemp seeds or, or Mediterranean pine nuts or, you know, or pea, or, or pea protein or pumpkin protein, a concentrated plant protein, or using some animal products in a smaller amount that may help this person because they're becoming, um, because their digestion is impaired. So not for normal people, but there are some occasionally abnormal people. We want to pump up the protein a little bit, but that's like a, you know, an abnormal case. Okay. Thank you. Um, and thank you for answering all my questions. Uh, this is very exciting for me because it's rare. You can have, you know, you can ask someone like you anything. So the next question I have personally is um, I'm wondering, I know your views on salt. Okay. And I, I would love if you can share with everyone. Um, is there any salt that is healthy? Like for example, um, you know, a lot of people in this um, healthy vegan movement, they do Himalayan pink salt. Is that a salt that doesn't, um, you know, affect your health in the way that normal salt does? What do you, what do you recommend? Absolutely not. It's one of the biggest scams in the world that people think that some special salts are not going to damage you because they still, whether they have impurities or whether they have some minerals in it, doesn't make the sodium, the high sodium content less damaging. Don't forget, you're getting most of, you're getting all your minerals, meaning fruits from eating vegetables and beans and nuts. You don't need salt to get your minerals. The mineral content of Himalayan salt or Celtic salt or, sa or salt from the back of the moon or the rock of Gibraltar, it doesn't matter. The mineral content is insignificant compared to what you get in a, in a few bites of food anyway. Yet the high level of sodium that, that um, takes its toll on the body and our lifetime exposure to sodium causes weakening of the endothelial lining of blood vessels and causes microvascular hemorrhaging and over time, many decades of use, you've weakened and aged your tissues. So you can't, there's no consumption of salt that is not gonna cumulatively shorten your life. Wow. Now that doesn't mean that, let's say you're just eating the sodium in natural foods, like just eating the sodium in vegetables and beans and nuts and fruits. And you're getting about you know, 400 to 500 milligrams of sodium a day from, uh, from your 1500 calorie diet, let's say, right? Now, if you had a piece of Ezekiel bread or some tomato sauce or mustard that had, you know, 100 to 200 milligrams of sodium in it, that's not gonna, you know, dramatically affect your health because you're still having under 800 milligrams of sodium for the day or under a thousand, you know, it's the people that are eating 1500, 2000, 2500, 3000, because a teaspoon of salt has 2200 milligrams of sodium. So a half a teaspoon is over a thousand. So even a quarter teaspoon of salt is way too much. But if you had something with a little touch of sodium, like hundred milligrams or under 200, that's not gonna, and that was all you did that whole day, that's not gonna be dangerous because it's too low to have a negative, to have a cumulative negative effect. Wow, okay. So you guys heard that. Get your sodium from vegetables, please. And so, so what is the, what is the alternative in the beginning for people? Because their taste buds have been corrupted and they really don't taste the salt in vegetables. So what is the health? That's right. The salt intake has, has deadened their taste buds. They don't even taste vegetables have flavor. They don't even taste the vanilla flavor in a, in a cashew nut. Avocados don't even taste good to them. They don't have the ability to enjoy food because they've deadened their taste buds with too much sweet and too much salt and too much spice. You know, their taste buds are so deadened. But over a period of months, their taste buds come back. But How, the answer is roasted garlic. 
Mm. It really helps. And putting lemon and using vinegars, flavored vinegars, a lot of things we do to make food have great flavor. You don't need to add salt. Okay, roasted garlic, yes. Okay. Um, and now, so how fast <laughs> do taste buds change? I read every seven days, but you said a few months, maybe, or longer, now, shorter. I used to think that people's, t- you know, it does change in a, in a few months, but when I did a survey of 750 people, because I thought it was just like two or three months. And I asked them, when did you start to like the nutritarian diet as much or better than your old diet? Almost everybody answered five to six months. I was shocked in the study because I thought people were going to say two to three months, but they almost all said five to six months. So maybe it doesn't mean that your taste buds aren't improving, but to actually get to that really ability to have that strong taste muscle to enjoy just natural flavors better, it may take longer. Okay. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, This leads me to my next topic, which is food addiction. Um, I help women to break their food addiction to the animal products and the processed foods. What is some advice that you give to somebody watching who has a food addiction? They are eating things they know is not healthy. They don't want to eat it anymore, but they can't stop. They, they physically can't seem to stop themselves. What is like the first few steps that you recommend to your clients? Enforced abstinence. If you want to quit smoking, you have to get it completely out. If you want to, if you're an alcoholic, it doesn't help to go out on the weekends and drink. Because when you imbibe in the addictive substance, it lights the fire under your desire. You know, it keeps lighting up that fire of wanting it more. It's staying away from those addictive substances long term for a long enough period of time to make you no longer desire them. You know, you know, I have a retreat here in San Diego where food addicts come and stay here for two to three months because it takes that long for them to be away from their addictive triggers. But people don't have to come here to lose weight and get healthy. They can do it at home but they have to set up their life. So they're not, um, how could I say, you know, they're not baby stepping their way to healthy eating with a foot in both worlds. They're gonna eat healthy, but they're still gonna have some of these things they love. Well, every time you have those, you use a little bit of the self-destructive food, it's gonna set you back to wanting, wanting it more. And it set you back into being a full-fledged food addict again. You're not moving in the direction of getting rid of your addictions until you're off the thing for a long enough period of time. You're rid of your addictions um, better and better and better for every day and week and month, you stay away from it. And the major you know, substance of addiction is, is SOS, you know, sugar, salt, and oil. It's such, it fuels overeating behavior and addictions. And people have to stay, stay away from sugar, salt, and oil long-term and learn how to, and learn how to cook this way, you know, learn how to prepare food this way. Yes. I mean, I used to think, you know, I used to give people a way they can move into this more gradually. And for some people that maybe there'll still be the right way, but there's so many people that it screws them up because they're trying to cut back on the foods they shouldn't be eating. And the cutting back just makes them want the food more. And they keep desiring that food and they keep cutting back until they cut it out completely and not cut it back. They don't give up their, they don't lose their desire for eating those things. So true. Yeah, that is such good advice. Because I remember when I tried to have a little square of chocolate, you know, because I was on a diet and I just all I could think about was having more chocolate. You know, that's all I wanted. Yeah. 
And you're right. Yeah. Getting it out of my life gets out of my bloodstream. I don't want it. And so, um, you know, people don't think that food, (sighs) this is crazy, but some people don't think food addiction is like as strong as other addictions. Can you, as a doctor, can you please speak upon the, the, the true essence of a food addiction? Is it as addicting, is food as addicting as drugs, as alcohol, as other substances? Well, certainly there's a continuum of addictive properties that you get with addictive substances. But the hallmark of food addiction, or the hallmark of addiction in general, is that when you stop the offensive substance, you start to feel worse and go through withdrawal symptoms. So a person moving from their unhealthy way of eating to a healthy way of eating is gonna start to feel fatigued and shaky, maybe headaches. They're not gonna feel maybe more agitated, that's one, they're not gonna feel great. The other type of, you know, the other type of behavior we're talking here is lighting up the centers in the brain, the same areas of the brain that are lit by opiates. And you become dopamine insensitive from the opiate exposure and you become dopamine insensitive and other neuropeptides are distorted unnaturally from the caloric rush because you can't get that many calories into the bloodstream at one time when you're eating natural foods. You have to eat you know, animal fats and oils and sweets and processed foods to flood all those calories into the blood high enough so the brain gets a hit. And the question is, why would people consume things that are not in their own best interest that are self-destructive, right? Why do they consume? Why do they smoke? They know smoking is not good for them. Why are they smoking? They know drinking alcohol causes cancer. Why are they drinking alcohol? They know that eating croissants and burgers and pizza and bacon is bad for them. Why are they doing that? Whoever said bacon's making you live longer? I mean, we know these things are unhealthy, but people are blocked out. It's called cognitive dissonance. They don't even, they're blocked out this idea. The primitive brain doesn't want to think about the self-destructive behavior because the addictive, the, the primitive, the addictive desires of the primitive brain supersedes the cerebral or intelligent brain. So you're no longer in control of your behavior. You're not using your best brain, your most intelligent self to say, oh, why am I eating this? Is this going to do me some long-term good? Is this good for my future health or is this going to hurt my future health? But instead of making those decisions on everything you eat, oh, I should eat this because it tastes good and it's good for me. But no, I should eat this instead because it's gonna take some years off my life, damage my brain cells, create diabetes, and I love it. But you wouldn't make that decision in your own, not in your own best interest unless you were addicted to it. Yeah, it's food addiction, that's this most, and even though the addictive drive to consume bad food is not as powerful as the addictive drive to consume heroin and cocaine, it still causes more death because there's many more people that have this milder form of addiction than the fewer people that have the stronger form of addiction. So even though those things can cause death, most of us are dying from the food addiction, which is more ubiquitous, even though it may be a little milder in intensity. Yeah, so then we can call a food addiction the most serious addiction on earth because more people are dying of a food addiction than any other addiction, correct? That's absolutely correct. Yes. So... Okay, and let's so, make it clear. There's no such thing as a healthy, overweight person, right? All overweight people are aging faster and increasing their risk of cancer. So why are people consuming more calories than they need? 
why can't they eat the right amount of calories like every other animal in nature? Where do you see, you know, obese, you know, hyenas and hippop you know, and squirrels and deer and running around the jungles and woods? You don't. They all weigh the same weight. All the deer live about the same age and are about the same weight when they're full grown and they, you know, because they're eating natural foods and when and and primitive humans didn't have didn't have huge weights and difference in weights either. This is the, the a dangerous and completely unnatural food environment we're in. And now we have unnatural diseases and unnatural bodies due to unnatural foods. We have to get back to eating natural foods that are, that are you know, that are not created by humans. So as a species, do you think we have a species-specific diet, all of us? And uh, what would you say that consists of exactly? I do. I think that because we are so genetically similar to the other primates, because of our development throughout history, particularly the, the primate development, that we became, and our, our DNA and our aging became vegetable dependent. We are a vegetable dependent animal, meaning that we have to eat a lot of plant foods, roughage and plants. And that the number one source of, you know, major source of calories of all primates is green vegetables and leaves. And we are a green vegetable dependent animal. And I say that because a lot of mitochondria function, cell function, DNA function, and the structure of our antioxidant response element and the NRF2 transcription proteins are fueled by these compounds in green vegetables. The nitric oxide system is fueled by our compounds in green vegetables. We can't manifest the healthiest version of ourselves without exposure to vegetables. So yeah, the, the ideal diet for humans is a plant-based diet with lots of vegetables and fruits and beans and nuts and other foods. But we can't be healthy on an animal product-based diet like a lion or a tiger can. We just don't have that structure. We can survive to meet middle ages, but then we die young of diseases that, that, that didn't have to happen. And we know now from a lot of the studies on keto diets, for example, we're seeing keto diets have double the risk of cardiovascular death at the same age compared to people on a, you know, on a standard diet, not even compared to people on a plant, on a nutritarian diet. But we're also seeing people, women who get pregnant on keto diets have a 90% increased risk of birth defects. And the, and the baby, the pregnant- Not, Did you say 90, nine zero? Nine zero. You know, if they stop the keto diet a year before they get pregnant, the risk of birth defects still goes up by 30%. You know, but here, the, the fetus is a Geiger counter for you. You drink alcohol, it doesn't really cause cancer. You don't think, but if you give it to the baby, it causes some defect really young. It's a, it's a, it's a Geiger counter to show how bad alcohol is for you in, in general, just because we don't, it takes decades to get the damage. It's still causing damage but the baby gets damaged right away from it so we can see the dangerous effects. But so we're de definitely seeing these, that the, our population has embraced a lot of dangerous dieting, stupid, stupid dieting, just because they're addicted to meat, that they don't, they want to come up with some rationalization so they can control their weight with, and not by cutting out back on carbohydrates so they can still eat all the meat they want. It's just still fueling their addictions with things with irrational behavior. Yes. Um, now I have a question from my audience. So I have a woman who has been on a mostly plant-based diet for the last seven years, but she still craves meat. She finds herself still craving like the, the things that she grew up with. Okay. So I guess the chicken and the steak and different things. 
Will it ever go away? Do you think that she has like parasites, perhaps? Uh, what can she do to get rid of the cravings? Well, two things. Number one, a craving does not mean a nutritional or biological need for something. It doesn't mean you're craving meat because you're low in iron or low in zinc or there's some extra protein you need. Cravings are perverted. They're, they're not normal and they don't exist because you need some nutrient in the food. That's not true. Cravings are the, mostly the result of emotional, um, you could not trauma, but emotional stress and emotional trauma that people are looking to, to use drugs to relieve life's pain. And their drug of choice is food and the memories they had of food and, and, and these kind of comfort foods when they, from their childhood. It's more of an, it's an emotional issue, not a biological issue. So I don't know what this person is eating. I don't know if their omega-3 index is adequate, if they're eating healthy enough, but if they're eating enough volume, fibers, nuts, fat in their diet, eating nuts and seeds, I don't know what they're doing wrong but they may be doing everything right and still have a craving that's some bait on some emotional need that they think, but it's not based on the need for meat. That's for sure. Okay. Thank you so much. I love what you just said. You know, people that have a food addiction while well, they're using food to relieve life's pain, they're using food for something other than fuel. Right. And so that needs to change. Um, and obviously it's quite hard. Um, and um, so you said abstinence. Um which is probably, yeah, the number one thing. Is there anything else that you'd recommend to someone after that um, going to your retreat center, which by the way, I'll leave the link below guys. Okay. So that would be an amazing way to for sure break your food addiction. Is there anything else that you can think of that can help people? Yes. Eating a giant salad for lunch every day. And we eat a salad with a bowl of vegetable bean soup and some fruit and some fruit. So it's salad vegetable bean soup and fruit, because the combination of the greens and the vegetables raw and cooked mixed with the beans and the mushrooms, with the salad dressing made of nuts and seeds, because you had some nuts, some beans, some mushrooms, some cooked greens, some raw greens, that combination slows gastric emptying and makes you feel satisfied with fewer calories. So now you only need 400 calories to feel satisfied, not 800 to feel satisfied. And it stays with you for hours. So by mixing a little bit, let's say my dinner might be, um, you know, raw vegetables with a hummus dip or a guacamole dip, maybe some walked broccoli, cabbage, mushrooms, onions, um, water chestnuts, snow pea pods with a Thai curry sauce and a, and a mango and a you know, a cherry vanilla ice cream made with banana and frozen cherries and a little real vanilla bean powder and a splash of plant milk in there whipped up or something and a few macadamia nuts. The combination of when you combine the beans and nuts and vegetables in the same meal, it, it slows gastric emptying. It makes for a more satiation and people are now satisfied with fewer calories. So yeah, it's when you eat right, it's not like it's going to, um, suddenly make you extra calories, not cause, not interfere with weight loss. You still can overeat if you eat right. But when you're not eating right, it makes it almost impossible not to overeat because your desire for extra calories is too strong. But when you're eating right, it takes away your desire for extra calories. So then you, then you don't have, then you can recreationally overeat, but you don't have to because you're not driven to overeat. 
the chance of, of being successful is improved the more people improve the quality of their diet. Oh yeah, that was good. That was good. Um, so guys, I have Dr. Furman here only for about 10 more minutes. So if you have questions, I know we had we have some questions in the chat, but if you have questions, leave them here right now and I'll make sure to get to them. Um, okay, so Shireen, thank you for being here. They asked, what are your thoughts on the raw vegan diet? Um, my thoughts are, and don't forget, I've been doing this for almost 40 years. And back when the American Natural Hygiene Society had a lot of people on raw vegan diets, I found that people, when they, when they eat raw, they wound up doing too much fruit, fruit, avocado, and nuts, and not enough vegetables and beans. And because of that, it lowered the protein bioavailability as they age and their absorption of zinc. And so it, it makes it so they had um, more immune suppression with aging. So I think that it's not the ideal way to eat a plant-based diet. I think it's ideally better to use some vegetables, cooked vegetables with beans, with cooked beans, because it makes it easier to eat more vegetables and beans and less fruit. Because the fruit-based diet leads for more immune system dysfunction, especially in later life. Like the middle-aged person in their 30s and 40s can digest fruit and, bio and protein so efficiently that they can still perform at a high level when the diet is almost all fruit. But as they get to be 80 or 90 years old, they start to get you know, more hair falling out, more muscle frailty, their nails are more likely to get fungal infections, and they're in increased risk of infection like pneumonia or, or skin. Um, so that's my experience, Ben that the fruit diet is that the too much fruit and all raw is not the ideal way to be a vegan. It's better to get the increased protein and the increased calories from by adding, because when the problem with raw vegetables is you're satisfied with so little that you don't want to eat enough vegetables. If you ate a little cooked broccoli or cooked vegetable in there, you'd, it'll get you to eat more vegetables. So I'm encouraging people that it gets a little more vegetables and beans and nuts and a little less fruit because the raw vegetables will push you a little, the raw diet will push you to a little more fruit, too much fruit and nuts and not enough vegetable and beans, which may not be ideal for the longest and more most vitality in your later years as we push the envelope of human longevity to live between 97 and 107 years old. Wow. I wanna ask a follow-up question on, um, you said that our closest primates eat a primarily green leafy vegetable diet. And I'm wondering, why do you think that some long-term raw vegans like a Doug Graham or Tony Wright, or, you know, some of these long-term raw vegans, they say that our closest primates eat a mostly fruit-based diet. Yeah. Can you clarify? I'm these? not saying that primates all eat predominantly green vegetables. I'm saying all the primates eat a lot of green vegetables. They don't just eat fruit. So some ah. do predominant fruit-based diet. That's true. Okay. Now I'm giving, I'm giving it Doug Graham diet as a perfect example. I'm saying people following that program might be, might be doing okay when they're young, but when they get older, they're going to be increased risk of infection and problems. And that's what we see all the time. I've had many people who, you know, who develop, who get into trouble with that as they age. Wow. And we expect that to happen to people like Doug Graham. Wow. He'll do okay until he gets in his, you know, until he gets to be like 80, 80 years old or 85 years old, then he'll age very fast. If he doesn't make a change, you know, doesn't um, 
Wow. Um, I think this might be my last question. So before I ask, I want to say thank you very much, everyone, for watching. Um, and if you'd like to connect with Dr. Furman, I will leave all his links below. He has a brand new book, Eat for Life. And um, he has many, many books, very important uh, books that you will not regret. You can pick any one of his books and it'll change your life. So I'll leave all the links below to his website, his, his retreat. And um, so my last question is, if I could put headphones on every single person in the world, um, and what you say will be translated in every country um, to every language. What is a message that you'd love to share with the world right now? That nutritional science has made sufficient advances that we can win the war on cancer, wiping out the vast majority of cancers, wipe out heart attacks and strokes, we have science to wipe out dementia. And when we eat a diet that is so disease protective, it could simultaneously have a major effect in aiding climate change and global warming simultaneously. So we can protect the natural world better and protect ourselves better by adopting a program that's, more, that, that's designed to maximize longevity in, in the human species. And we have tremendous amount of corroborating information today. So this information is not controversial anymore. And I have more than 2000 references from scientific studies in, my, in the recent book you mentioned, the Eat for Life book, to show people that it's not my opinion, it's the opinion of all the nutritional scientists around the world today doing thousands, publishing thousands of studies every month. And I've reviewed more than 30,000 studies on this issue. So we have more definitive evidence that we don't have to have these diseases. We can save millions of lives. And, you know, and an undue amount of needless tragic suffering. And of course, that the same, you can say, dietary portfolio that slows aging, enables us to live longer, is therapeutically effective to reverse disease. So people can get rid of their diabetes, reverse their high blood pressure, get rid of their chest pains and heart disease, have their psoriasis go away, get rid of their headaches, have their lupus get better from lupus, the kidney get better from lupus, and have their whole button, have their rheumatoid arthritis pain resolve. I have, all, you know, I have 35 or more years of using nutritional excellence as a therapeutic intervention on enabling people to recover their health. And, it, and, as, a, and as a tool, it's so incredibly effective because they have the power to get to get people back to good health again. Wow. Yes, that is powerful. And um, can you just share with us, please, how old you are? I'm going to be 70 in, in December. So I'm almost 70 years old. Amazing. And you how long have you been on a plant exclusive diet? Uh, well, I've been eating mostly plants probably since I'm age 10, but you could say um, probably, you know, mostly plant exclusive, like you hardly ever eat animal products, probably from age 20 on, you know what I mean? Wow, wow. But the point is we wanna maintain our mental power, our physical ability, our athletic ability, our ability to enjoy life into our later years. That's the whole point. Yes. 
Thank you so, so much, Dr. Furman. I really appreciate you. I'll put all links below and I appreciate everyone for watching. Do me a favor, give this a thumbs up and share this with somebody who needs it, somebody who might not see this, who needs help, who needs to break their food addiction and maybe go to Dr. Furman's retreat center. So thank you very much for watching and thank you, Dr. Furman, for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That was a really great interview. Thank you.